Our guest today, Sharon Begley, is someone whose science writing you have heard us quote from on many occasions. Her science column for Newsweek provided most, if not all, of those quotes. We've quoted her because her columns are accurate and succinct. We know how hard that can be to pull off when talking about complex scientific matters. In the current issue of the Saturday Evening Post, Ms. Begley weighs in on a topic we've discussed many times. Her title says it all, Why We Need Germs. Most people tend to think of microbes as tiny, nasty beasts trying to do us in. While we know there are such things as good germs, aside from the bacteria in our gut that help us digest and yeast that help us make beer or wine, most folks are hard-pressed to think of how any microscopic bugs can help us. We need to change our thinking. New research is showing just how important microbes are to human health. It turns out they're very important. And discuss this fascinating topic, we're delighted to be able to say... Welcome to Radio Parallax, Sharon Begley. And thank you for having me. Sharon, it may surprise listeners to learn that our microbial hitchhikers weigh several pounds and that they're not so much as parasites as partners to our own human cells. And I'm sure you'd agree that we should now think of it uh, as that they are, are part of us. Well, they are so much even more than us. If you just counted cell by cell, they outnumber human cells by something like 10 to 1. So there are 100 trillion of them um, and only 10 trillion of us. And they live in our digestive tracts and on our skin, um, mouth, nose, you know, really everywhere. Um, and right, as you say, because they're, they weigh so little, each and every one of those cells, they account for only 1 or 2% of our weight. But still, that's, you know, not something to ignore. Well, this, a full picture of what's going on with the microbes that are in us and on us is only now being deciphered. And I guess one question people are asking is, how is it we've missed this for so long? You know, the, the, the outlook for decades, if not centuries, has been these are bad. I mean, once the germ theory of disease emerged, um, the recognition was that these are things that can cause illness. And that prevailed since the mid-1800s. Um, but the recognition has grown now just because, well, for, for many reasons, but one is, again, just how numerous they are. And when you look at that, you have to ask, well, surely if there are so many of them, they can't all be deleterious. Otherwise, you know, none of us would uh, live beyond a couple of years. Um, so that's when the research took off, asking if they are so prevalent, um, what functions might they be serving? And that has led the research into a number of neat areas, ranging from the role of the microbes in, oh gosh, uh, obesity and autoimmune disease, um, asthma, um, the, the list goes on. Well, let's talk about some of those uh, in a moment, but um, I guess I'm just, I'm just stunned by the fact that uh, our own germs might contribute 360 times as many functional genes to our environment as we have in our own DNA, and I'm, I'm sure you're taken aback yeah. as well. <laughs> Um, this is work that emerged from the uh, so-called microbiome project, um, which attempted to, just as you implied, sequence all of the DNA in the uh, microbes, which include mostly bacteria, but other micro, uh, single-cell organisms as well. They're just, there are 10,000 species of bacteria alone in and on us. Um, and yeah, the uh, genetic diversity there way outnumbers us. Um, and of course, genetic diversity is at least sort of correlated with complexity and the number of functions that an organism can carry out. Um, so again, that just underlines how important they are uh, in human functioning. 
Well, I know we have some disease states that we should uh, address in a moment, but let's, let's, let's talk about some experiments that help may help resolve the mystery of how it is some folks eat what they want and they don't get fat, while others can't say that. Uh, scientists have looked at uh, the type of bacteria in fat versus thin mice to discover that those in the fat mice were apparently contributing to their obesity. This was one of the first experiments that really put uh, research on the microbiome or microbiota on the scientific map. Um, and indeed, the research showed that the, they, they took thin mice and, and obese mice, and the discovery was that the two kinds had very different gut microbes. So, you know, that could have just been a coincidence. Um, so what the researcher did is transfer the gut bacteria from the obese mice into the thin ones. And the thin mice didn't eat any more than they used to, but they quickly started gaining weight. Um, and the reason, it turns out, is, um, well, let me take a step back. So, you know, when we're at the fast food restaurant or in the grocery store and we read the menu calorie counts or we look at the box and see how many calories are in a serving, we think, okay, so if I, you know, ingest uh, this 1,200-calorie half of a Domino's bacon cheeseburger pizza, um, 1,200 calories is 1,200 calories. It's 1,200 for you and 1,200 for me. But it, in fact, it turns out that the calories that pass through your mouth, as it were, are not necessarily the calories that you extract from the food, because a lot of that extraction is done not you know, just by your own digestive enzymes, but by the bacteria in your digestive tract. And some bacteria are really, really good at extracting every last calorie from that 1,200-calorie half a pizza, and other bacteria sort of let those food particles, let those calories just, just go on by. Um, and, you know, you might think, well, gosh, I really want the first kind because if I'm going to eat, I want to get something out of it. And almost certainly that's how those bacteria evolved to be in us because back when food was scarce, you really needed to get every single calorie out of them. But obviously that's not the environment that we're living in now. Um, but, right, the difference seems to be that some bacteria extract just more calories from the food we eat, and those ones are not surprisingly associated with obesity. Well, of course, this is the tip of the iceberg for, uh, for something that everyone's quite, quite intrigued by, the possibility that we can manipulate our, our bacteria in our gut to, to help us. And, of course, that's obviously correct in principle, but sort of we can practice. And I, uh, you've noted, and I, and I certainly have noted on this program, that uh, the advertisers for probiotics are a little bit ahead of the science here. Um, and even more than a little bit. There are <laughs> probiotics, there are prebiotics, there's everything in between. Um, but, you know, people should keep in mind that if they're taking um, one of those, uh, the, the quantities are just micro, nano, minuscule compared to what you already have. And it's not at all clear that they're going to do anything, let alone anything beneficial for you. Um, the, the closest I came to anything sort of rigorous in terms of how you can cultivate the kind of bacteria you want. Um, and again, this had to do with those with bacteria associated with obesity versus being slim. Um, the microbes linked to slimness proliferate, proliferate in the presence of a particular form of sugar. Um, it's actually a form of fructose. It's called fructans. And that sugar is found in a bunch of foods, including, uh, let's see, garlic, onions, artichokes, asparagus. So, you know, not stuff that's too exotic. Um, so at least hypothetically, a diet high in fructans might support a uh, bumper crop of the slimming bacteria.
I, I hope they work this out. <laughs> this, this, this is going to be a, have a lot of applications uh, for all of us, I think. Um, I want to talk about something that really got my attention. Your, your article in the Post mentions um, a study done on sinusitis. I, I work in urgent care sometimes. I see people who are sometimes just terribly prone to recurrent sinus infections, and I guess some new studies are indicating that maybe just plain old bad bugs are to blame. Yeah, um, a chronic uh, rhinosinusitis is responsible for something like 30 million doctor visits a year and even half a million uh, emergency department visits a year. Um, so last year, researchers uh, just down the coast from you um, at UC San Francisco um, reported that the nasal bacteria, or actually more than bacteria, the entire microbiota of patients who have uh, chronic sinusitis are much less diverse than those of healthy people. In particular, um, the patients had low levels of lactic acid bacteria, um, a few lactobacillus species, and abnormally high levels of another form of bacteria, uh, Corynebacterium. bacterium. Um, I described it as sort of a monoculture um, because, again, the patient's bacteria were much less diverse. And, of course, a monoculture in your nose is no healthier than the monoculture uh, in a, you know, a, a farmer's field. Sure. So, again, it's only uh, correlation. Um, they haven't proved causation yet, at least in people. But then they took the next step, and they depleted the microbiota of mice to make them more like the patients. And, lo and behold, the mice did develop sinusitis. So, again, that gets us another step toward a really firm cause-and-effect link. It's, it's great stuff, and I hope, I hope they can come up with a nasal wash in the next few years that's going to help people. That would be tremendous. We need to talk about antibiotic misuse, and I'd like to detour into a famous scientific case that kind of shows how these matters can be a bit complex. A Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded to scientists who suspected that a germ called H. pylori contributed to ulcers. They turned out they were right, and that's how they got a Nobel Prize. But the treating that bug... While it's lowered the number of surgeries for being done, being done for ulcers, appears to be having perhaps a bad effect against uh, asthma. Can you talk about that? Yeah, really weird. Um, so as you said, it's H. pylori, um, causes ulcers linked to stomach cancer. Um, and it used to be ubiquitous, but now it's found in just something like 6% of kids in the United States. Um, not totally clear why, but almost certainly due to the widespread use of antibiotics and antimicrobials. Um, and the dark lining there is that uh, H. pylori might ward off asthma. So how do we know this? Um, so a researcher here at New York University found that uh, kids without H. pylori are more likely to have had childhood asthma than those with it. So again, you ask, okay, that's just correlational. Could it just be a coincidence? Um, and again, the usual procedure is, okay, let's, let's go to the mice. And that's what researchers in Switzerland did. They infected half of their mice with, the, with H. pylori. They left the other half germ-free. Then they exposed all the mice to you know, dust mites and all this other stuff that uh, typically triggers an asthma attack. And the mice with the H. pylori were fine. Um, and the genetically uh, identical mice um, without the H. pylori did suffer the airway inflammation that is the mark of asthma. Not really clear how H. pylori might do this, um, so that obviously is the next step. But since we have had an explosion in the incidence of asthma at the same time that H. pylori has been plummeting, you know, you have to look at that and say, well, maybe there's something there. And another place there may be something there is uh, at least some think that maybe hardening of the arteries may be related to our bacteria. And so, you know, in the wake of curing ulcers, people are really intrigued by that one. 
Yeah, so for atherosclerosis, of course, uh, heart disease being the leading killer, at least in the United States and many other developed countries. Um, and again, the first step is to just compare people with and without the illness. And again, they found that this was research um, in Sweden. The gut bacteria of people with atherosclerosis had fewer genes for the production of a natural antioxidant. Um, you know, we were saying earlier that one obvious function of these uh, microbes is to uh, pull calories out of the food we eat. But they have other functions as well. Um, we we're talking about the complexity of their genomes, um, and those genes do things. And one of the things those genomes do is to produce vitamins and also antioxidants. So to get back to the atherosclerosis story, the gut bacteria of people with the disease had fewer genes to produce an, an antioxidant, so the people had less of the antioxidant. And as we have all seen in the profusion of research linking antioxidants to uh, health and disease, um, less of the antioxidant has been linked to heart health. So again, in this case, the microbiome seems to be churning out something that is helpful to us, and if we don't have enough of it, we don't have enough of that helpful thing. Um, and similarly, the patient's microbiomes produce more compounds that cause inflammation. And again, um, the research has been showing that inflammation, not just the amount of uh, lipids and other fats in your bloodstream, um, can drive atherosclerosis. We're speaking with science writer Sharon Begley about her fascinating article in the current Saturday Evening Post entitled, Why We Need Germs. Um, let's talk about antibiotic misuse. Uh, we've always had an idea it was important to have good bugs, but now we realize that it, it's, it's vital. Uh, obviously, if we're, then if we're going to use antibiotics, uh, we're going to get a lot of collateral damage. Yes. Um, and, you know, as we were saying at the start, uh, the, the war on germs has just become, you know, sort of almost a carpet bombing exercise. And uh, to the credit of mainstream medicine, finally, um, the physicians are recognizing that antibiotics have been just insanely overused. And um, you, I, you, you, I know you're aware of the Choosing Wisely campaign, which is an effort on the part of medical specialty groups to identify treatments and tests and other stuff that are not helpful to patients and might be actively harmful. And Exhibit A on the list of several specialty societies, including pediatricians and internal medicine, is the overuse of antibiotics, even for things where we thought, well, that's appropriate, um, such as a lot of ear infections. So uh, physicians are recognizing that we are prescribing way more antibiotics than are good for anybody. They're not good for the individual, and they're certainly not good in terms of public health. Um, and, of course, we also get antibiotics in much of the food we eat. Farmers, ranchers use them yes. when they raise cattle and, and other animals. And, you know, let's just pause here to ask why um, farmers use antibiotics in their animals. And the answer is the antibiotics allow the animals to put on weight, to put on meat faster. So, again, you look at that and say, well, hold on, if it's making the animals put on weight faster and now I'm eating the same antibiotic, might there be something here? Well, you know, as a physician, I, I'm outraged that, of course, we were always lectured to try and conserve our use of antibiotics, and then we go out and see that 80% of the antibiotics in this country are going to feed cattle, chicken, et cetera, because it does promote that that faster growth. And I, I certainly agree with your suggestion in the article that, you know, it might be time for consumers to start considering considering buying antibiotic-free meat. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and as always, you know, in fairness to physicians, who are, many of whom are trying to reduce, you know, just the uh, 
willy-nilly uh, offering of prescriptions of antibiotics for even the common cold for Pete's sake, which of course is viral and antibiotics won't help. Um, they're often just, you know, browbeaten by their patients. I, you know, I made the appointment, I'm here, yeah. give me the darn prescription. So there's also a lot of public <laughs> education that has to go on. So I have to laugh because, you know, I, I, I am a practicing physician and I deal with that every day in urgent care. It's just, it's just, it's just one of those things. I believe it. You know, I want to note, too, you're a science editor for Reuters, and this very week you have an article out about another possible antibiotic-resistant bacteria, a CRE, carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae. And, of course, again, this is, I think, in, in no small part, my colleagues keeping an antibiotic that should have been reserved for the really bad bugs and, and breaking it out and using it and producing this resistance. Exactly, and for this one, uh, Centers for Disease Control is now really on the warpath telling, um, especially acute care hospitals, um, these are places like for wound care and ventilation where patients stay for a very long time, but also just regular hospitals and, of course, uh, uh, nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Um, You you know what? You really have to wash down every surface, um, you know, as hospitals cut back on things. um, You know, maintenance and janitorial services are not what you want to cut back on, so you really have to swap down the deck and also you have to really look not for a second time for a third time for a fourth time at your uh, wide use of antibiotics um, including in patients where it's clearly not appropriate and also how long you use them you know an acute course might make sense but many patients um, are just kept on sort of chronic antibiotics, the idea being, well, you know, we want to prevent an infection, um, but obviously that is just breeding superbugs. Well, as your piece in the Post uh, points out, we do need to give that whole thing a rethink. I just want to note as an aside, I, I got a laugh out of your Reuters article mentioning that good hand washing does in, uh, cut infection rates. Gee, <laughs> what, Gee, what a concept. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I'm hoping that if you keep beating the drum on this, that we'll finally get rid of the tie, because I always hated wearing one, and every, everyone's shown that this is a great way to transmit bacterial diseases, and yet they encourage people to use them because, well, it's good PR. Oh, well, somebody told me that in the photo that we ran. Um, so the person had a ring on his or her finger, and the reader asked, well, you know, can't stuff get under the ring? And I said, you know what, probably. So ties and rings, got to go. I, I'm, I'm with you. You make brief mention of one thing that it just sort of mentioned in passing, but it really got riveted my attention to it. There is a single species of bacteria that's thought to cause most dental cavities. So if we can use maybe good bacteria to fight the bad, that, that might revolutionize dentistry. That would be, you know, something that every unfortunate little six-year-old who's going in for a filling, um, you know, would uh, trade every video game for. Um, <laughs> it's called Streptococcus mutans, um, and it is, it is the chief cause of most cavities, um, and that's been known for a while. Um, and the reason it is is that the sugar we eat, and, uh, you know, I don't just mean table sugar there, but uh, the sugar in um, all foods, both uh, natural and added, it, it turns the sugar into acid, and it's the acid that eats away at tooth enamel. So the uh, applied research from that is to work on a mouthwash that would kill um, this uh, particular species of strep. And again, that obviously raises hope that uh, you know, tooth decay will become uh, you know, a thing of the past. Well, the whole thrust of your article seems to be that the sky may be the limit of what we may be able to do for human health with all of our new understanding, I guess you'd say. I want to ask you, what among these possible applications for improving our own bacterial ecosystems do you think is perhaps the most exciting? I was really intrigued by certainly the obesity research, just because, you know, we all have friends who seem able to consume 
anything they want, and then the rest of us can't walk past a bakery without, you know, <laughs> it going to our hips. Um, and you ask, well, you know, what the heck? Um, so I always like it when there's an explanation for that other than, you know, God hates me or something. Um, <laughs> and the explanation that the different kinds of microbes extract different number of calories from the food we eat. Um, it's just one of the th- those things where you read it and you say, aha, now I understand. Um, so that uh, clearly is important. And, uh, and, of course, given the obesity, um, the prevalence of obesity in this country, anything that offers insight and maybe a way to uh, attack it is important. Um, But also um, atherosclerosis and asthma, um, the two big A's. Uh, The the idea that infectious diseases, anything having to do with microbes, could have anything to do with those really came as a big surprise to researchers. And, you know, as you know better than I, infectious infectious diseases, except for AIDS, has become sort of a a less sexy part of medicine over the last few years. you know, oncology, uh, mm-hmm. rheumatology, thoracic surgeons, brain surgeons. Um, and, you know, maybe we neglected that um, at our peril, and it's time to start paying attention again to these little one-celled wonders that we all carry around with us. Yes, indeed. Uh, as we wrap up, I-, I just want to go off topic for a moment and note for our listeners that back in 2007, you wrote a cover story for Newsweek on what you called the denial machine on global warming. Your article received a some widespread and sometimes furious criticism, but I just want to note for our listeners that despite that criticism, time has just shown how right you were. Well, thank you. (laughs) Of course, as I look out my window, there's a blizzard, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my final question, is there a topic you've got you envision tackling next? I'd like to know what that might be. Um, I have been looking into the quote-unquote war on cancer um, and how the, what shall we say, the, the proceeds from that have really uh, failed to live up to expectations and certainly lived up to hopes. So the disconnect between the amazing research findings, uh, research in lab animals, research at the genetics level, and how that is just failing to translate into something or into enough that's clinically relevant, in other words, that can help patients, is quite astonishing and I would say even depressing. Um, so it, I think it's interesting to ask where that disconnect comes from and obviously can we do anything to bridge the gap. Wow. Full speed ahead on that one. That is, that is a most worthy Thank topic. You. Yes. <laughs> the article is titled Why We Need Germs. It's in the current issue of the Saturday Evening Post. We've been speaking with author Sharon Begley about it and I recommend dear listener that you read this piece. And I want to say Sharon Belly, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Take care. All righty. And like I said, bacteria. Bacteria. Look, there's bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything you touch, bacteria.